Father, we thank you. I know we look around us, and for a lot of people, there's not a whole lot to be thankful for. Homes have been destroyed. People have lost their lives uh, with Tropical Storm Ida coming through our area. But Lord, we thank you that you remain who you are. You remain on your throne. Your plan remains. Lord, we thank you that you uphold us with your righteous right hand. You watch over us. You provide for us. You protect us. We can always find your mercy. We can always find your comfort. We can always find your peace. So, Lord, we come before you today as your children, desiring you and only you. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is alive and active and powerful. It creates change in our lives. It creates meaning and life within us. So, Lord, I pray that your name would be glorified as we learn more about you and grow closer to you through this experience. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to nobility and royal titles, there are some that are pretty straightforward. However, there are some in royal history that are kind of silly, and in some cases just plain ridiculous. For instance, Queen Elizabeth II currently holds the title, among her other offices, Admiral in the Great Navy of Nebraska. There, <laughs> there are a few funny observations about this. Firstly, Comedian Bill Murray also holds the same title. I don't know what the qualification is, but. Secondly, I thought one part of the entire identity of the United States of America was to not have any British royalty hold any power over us. And thirdly, have you seen where Nebraska is? Where would there be any place for a Navy? I think they knew exactly what they were doing in handing out this title. The second silly title on this list is Hugh Capet, crowned King of France in 987 AD, and the first of a whole dynasty named the Capetian dynasty. What's funny about this is the word Capet in French is a nickname to mean wearing a cape, as you can see here. This guy's entire royal name and subsequent dynasty's name was based on the fact that he apparently liked wearing capes. Today, that image is mainly relegated to Count Dracula Halloween costumes and five-year-olds who dressed up like superheroes, but this was apparently the cool thing about a thousand years ago. Lastly, Prince Philip of Edinburgh, late husband to Queen Elizabeth II, was formally and technically royally entitled. <sighs> His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Marioneth, Baron Greenwich, Royal Knight of the Most Noble Order of the Garter, Extra Knight of the Most Ancient and Most Noble Order of the Thistle, Member of the Order of Merit, Grand Master and First and Principal Grand Knight Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, Knight of the Order of Australia, Additional member of the Order of New Zealand, Extra Companion of the Queen's Service Order, Royal Chief of the Lord Order of Lagoa, 
Extraordinary Companion of the Order of Canada, Extraordinary Commander of the Order of Military Merit, Canadian Forces Decoration, Lord of Her Majesty's Most Honorable Privy Council, Privy Councilor of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada, Personal Aide de Camp to Her Majesty, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom. You think he fit all that in his Gmail signature? So, some of those I had no clue what the reference was, but my favorite was Extraordinary Companion of the Order of Canada. Like he and the whole country of Canada were BFFs, and he needed a big name to describe that. In our passage this morning, Jesus gives a title to a man named Nathaniel, who we started to talk about last week. But what I thought kind of amusing was that Nathaniel, in acknowledging Jesus' description of him, essentially gives himself this title. What I mean is this. Jesus says, Hello, man in whom there is found no deceit. And instead of Nathaniel responding with, Oh, I don't know about that. He says, Yes? How do you know who I am? That's his response. <laughs> To understand what's going on here and what it all means for us today, let's go back for a second. Last week, we introduced Nathaniel and Nathaniel's friend, Philip. If you missed that message, we covered these guys and their background last week, so I encourage you to check that out on our website or podcast platforms. All we really need to do to bridge between last week and this week is that Philip was most likely childhood friends with Andrew and Simon Peter, having all grown up in Bethsaida. At some point, all three moved to Capernaum for Simon Peter to move in and help out his in-laws and for him and Andrew to start a fishing venture with their business partners, John and James. After Andrew, Simon, and John all have their first encounter with Jesus and all having believed in him as the Messiah, we read last week that the three of them and Jesus all make their way to Capernaum where they just so happen to bump into their childhood friend, Philip. Jesus says two words to Philip, follow me. But apparently those two words were enough for him to do just that. Similar to Andrew, Philip goes and tells someone else that they'd found the Messiah that had been prophesied about throughout the Jewish scriptures. That someone else was, was Philip's friend Nathaniel, whose last name most likely was Bartholomew, which is why we don't have Nathaniel's name show up anywhere else in the New Testament, but we see Bartholomew's name show up. In addition, Philip and Bartholomew's names are listed together in the list of the apostles in the other three Gospels and Acts chapter 1. But what ends up happening when Philip initially goes and tells his friend Nathaniel this news? Philip, uh, Nathaniel responds with criticism and antagonism. He just could not get past his preconception of Nazareth and his prejudice of the people who he thought came from there and responded with, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We focused last week on Philip's response to this initial antagonism from his friend. Philip didn't respond with anger. He didn't respond with passive aggressiveness. He didn't respond by giving up or walking away. All Philip responds with in gentleness was an invitation. Come and see. That's all he responds with. Philip left it all up to Jesus to prove who he was. The Bible tells us it's the same in our conversations with others, especially those who respond with criticism and antagonism to our faith in Jesus. It's not our job to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. Believe it or not. 
It's not our job to argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. That's not how it works. It's all up to God to work in that person's heart and lead them to himself according to his will and his timing. All we do is extend an invitation for people to check out Jesus for themselves, and all we can do is plant seeds along the way. Scripture is clear that if anything is going to happen in people's hearts, it will only be God who makes those seeds sprout and grow. That gives us the freedom to know that all we have to do is live a life pleasing to Jesus and plant seeds in conversations and leave the rest up to God. Now, we jump back into the result of Philip's invitation to Nathaniel. Philip, uh, Nathaniel eventually relents and goes with Philip to see this hillbilly from Podunk Nazareth that Philip was claiming to be the Messiah. We're going to pick up in John chapter 1, verses 47 through 48. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 1. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Or you can look it up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 1, verses 47 through 48, and we read, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, this is why I referenced before, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. This connects with what I was talking about at the beginning of the message. Jesus sees Nathanael coming towards him, and he addresses him as a true Israelite in whom there was no deceit. As pointed out by biblical scholarship, when Jesus said this, when Jesus made this statement, he was making a play on words and connecting Nathanael with Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob, who was renamed Israel, or that, and there's the play on words of the Israelite, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, was a man of deceit, right? That was his whole identity. As we take, took a look at extensively in men's Bible study, Jacob lived his entire life by deceiving other people. He was the epitome of a con man. He swindled his brother out of not only his firstborn extra share of inheritance, but he also deceived their father out of giving him, as the younger son, the firstborn blessing as well. Then he went to work for his uncle and father-in-law Laban. He deceived him and then tried to buy his brother's forgiveness upon his return to Canaan. Now, obviously, Nathaniel wasn't perfect, like every other human being, but apparently he identified himself with always telling it like it is. We get that idea with his initial response to Philip. One could say sarcastically to Nathaniel, man, tell us how you really feel. He was the type of person that we probably know or are ourselves where we always know exactly what they're thinking about any given topic. You got somebody that you know who's like that? You, all, you always know what they're thinking about whatever you're talking, because they let you know whatever they're thinking about whatever you're talking about. Jesus was voicing encouragement to Nathaniel and telling him that he was a person that was unlike Jacob and whom was little falsehood. Nathaniel responded with, yeah, I know. How do you know me? Jesus simply responded with a supernatural revelation. He divulges to Nathanael that before Philip even went to him and said anything to him, 
that Jesus saw him sitting under a particular fig tree. Now, Jesus probably even had supernatural knowledge of what Nathanael was even doing under that fig tree before Philip showed up. Judging by Jesus' reference to Jacob, and then as we'll see, his reference again to Jacob in verse 51, Jesus probably knew that Nathanael had been meditating on the life of Jacob before Philip arrived. So really, Jesus' entire conversation with Nathanael revolved around what Nathanael was thinking in his mind, that Jesus should have had no knowledge of if he was not God, right? Because this is all stuff that was going on in his mind before Philip even showed up. The fig tree that Nathanael had been sitting under was most likely a place for meditation. So Jesus was not only revealing that he knew where Nathanael was before Philip showed up, but what Nathanael was even meditating on, what Nathanael was even thinking about under that fig tree. We're told elsewhere that Jesus knew what was going on in the hearts of the people he was talking to. But more importantly, the entirety of Psalm 139 tells us the extent of the knowledge that God has of us as his children. We first read in that psalm, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know that I am what I am going to say even before I say it, Lord. Those are both convicting words in that we can't hide anything from God and he always knows every thought we're thinking about any given situation, but they're also comforting words. We have a God who is so deeply connected with who we are at our innermost being, who knows everything about us and who we are and our greatest struggles and our greatest pains and greatest joys and exactly what we think and how we feel about anything and everything and loves us anyway and works with us through his Holy Spirit to redeem every single aspect of who we are, what we think, what we struggle with, and what we say. No other religion Faith system or belief can say that. That is just one, of the, just one of the major differences between biblical Christianity and every other faith. We have a God who knows us both perfectly and redeems us perfectly. Not only that, but anywhere and everywhere we are, physically, emotionally, Mentally, psychologically, and spiritually, God also is. We next read, You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. 
Even when we've spiritually walked the farthest away from God, God is still there. Even in our greatest emotional torment, God is still there. Even in our darkest depression, God is still there. Even in our hardest mental or psychological conditions, God is there. God knows everything there is to know about our physical bodies, what makes them tick, what pains, sicknesses, and brokenness ails them. We then read, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. That is just a mind-blowing truth. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every day that we live, everything that we go through each day, that's already been written out in God's book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. That is just incredible, isn't it? God not only knows what's going on in your life, he knows what's coming up ahead because he's the one who wrote it all out in his book. He specifically made our physical bodies the way they are and how he would show us his glory in redeeming every aspect of them. He knows our greatest physical struggles, what we're biologically predisposed to. He knows what physical deformities or disabilities we have that he's using for his plan and his glory. He knows how the curse of sin has affected each of us in our physical bodies and minds. What physical and mental struggles we would battle against every day for the rest of our lives. From alcoholism and drug addiction, to depression, to anxiety, to same-sex attraction, to promiscuity, to a gender identity that differs from a biological identity and what is clearly established in the blueprint of creation and scripture. He knows all of it. He's redeeming all of it. He's using all of it for his glory, and he is fighting these battles on your behalf if you surrender them to him. The world has its own opinions and standards on all of this, but is it the creation's right to form those standards of morality, or is it the creator's? It's not the world that gets to call the shots and dictate morality, nor is it science's place, since science can only work within a fallen and broken world. It's only God. It's his plan, his decision for our lives, and thankfully, it's his redemption of all of it. Not only that, but God wrote out who we would be, how sin would affect us, what our greatest struggles would be, what our greatest achievements would be, what our, when we would give our lives to him through Jesus, when, we, when he would redeem each aspect of our lives, when we would die, and how we would die, all before we were born. Not only does God know us perfectly from conception onward, but he even knew us perfectly well before we were even conceived. 
God knew each of us perfectly and what his plan for each of us would be before he even uttered the words, let there be light. We need not fear anything in our life, nor how or when it will end, because it's God who already planned all of it. We can just trust him. As if all of this wasn't mind-blowing enough, not only does God know us in every way perfectly, but he's constantly thinking about us. He's constantly thinking about our needs, our redemption, our weaknesses, and our strengths. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God? They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Don't think for one second that God does not know what you're going through at any given moment of any given day and knows exactly what you need and what to give you and when to give it to you. So what response should that create in us? The only thing we can do, surrender. That's the only thing we can do, surrender. Since God knows everything there is to know about us, even our innermost being and our greatest struggles, we surrender all of it, all of who we are to his redemption, holding nothing back from his Holy Spirit's transformative power. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Surrender. All of this makes it very easy for us to now understand how Jesus knew exactly who Nathaniel was, exactly where he was, and exactly what he was thinking, because in reality, he knows everything there is to know about us at any given moment. Nathaniel recognizes this supernatural revelation, especially in connection with everything we discussed about Psalm 139. No doubt Nathaniel knew Psalm 139. And regardless of his human understanding of how Jesus as God fit in with any kind of understanding of the Trinity and what that meant, at the very least, Nathaniel understood this revelation as proof that Jesus was the prophesied messianic king. He says this much in his declaration to Jesus' words. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Just because of this obvious supernatural revelation that only the Messianic King, as always God, would have knowledge of, Nathanael puts his full trust in Jesus as all of what this was supposed to be. And we know this because we know Nathaniel wore his opinion on his sleeve. Everybody knew what he was thinking. Jesus isn't taken aback by Nathaniel's response because he already knew what was in Nathaniel's heart. But he uses that as an opportunity to reward Nathaniel's simple, wholehearted, and immediate faith. Jesus says in response to Nathaniel's profound declaration of faith, Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. Because Nathanael immediately surrendered himself to Jesus as the prophesied Messiah, Jesus tells him that he will be rewarded by having the opportunity to witness firsthand much more powerful miracles than simply telling him where he was. For his simple and immediate faith, Nathanael, along with the other apostles, would witness the blind receiving sight, People with lifelong disabilities have those turned completely around. Thousands of people be fed with only a few pantry items. Full-fledged, actual, demonic beings driven out of helpless people. And the greatest miracle of all, himself rising again to life after having been completely physically dead for portions of three days. Think of all the blessings that those who accept Jesus as their Savior and King pretty early on in their lives and continue to follow him enjoy. In a lot of cases, they are spared from a lot of heartache from bad decisions and see God's blessings over most of their whole lives. But again, it's all God's plan. It's all God's timing. And it's all God's decision as to when or even if we ever surrender our lives to him. We can be grateful for all the blessings, provision, protection, and redemption that come after that surrender, no matter when that is in our lives. Like I mentioned already, Jesus ends this conversation with Nathaniel by tying back into this whole theme of comparing and contrasting Nathaniel with who Nathaniel had been meditating on before, before Philip even showed up, the life of Jacob. Verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, Jesus is making a clear connection to a notable experience in Jacob's life. When Jacob was running away from his brother who wanted to kill him for his deception, he fell asleep on his way to his uncle's house. With a rock for a pillow, Jacob had a dream, which was really a heavenly revelation. In the original story we read, As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. At the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your grandfather Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. The ground you are lying on belongs to you. I am giving it to you and your descendants. There are a few connections Jesus is making with his statement here, as noted by biblical scholarship. The first is that access for Nathaniel and anyone else who put their faith in Jesus would be opened up to God himself. Everyone else between Moses and Jesus, except for the specific prophets God called, did not have that access. The closest anyone had was watching the high priest enter the Holy of Holies once a year to atone for Israel's sins. But something new was happening here. The door to heaven and God would be opened up to anyone who believed the same as Nathaniel, that Jesus is the Messiah and God. The way to get to that access was by way of the ladder. 
in Jacob's original dream, it was an actual ladder or stairway. In Jesus' statement, the Son of Man, or Jesus, would be that ladder. Jesus would be the access to heaven and God. Let me ask you this. In Jacob's dream, were there multiple ladders, multiple stairways? No. Just one, right? Just one. In the exact same way, Jesus is the one and only way of accessing God and heaven. Lastly, in the original story, God appeared to the, at the top of the ladder to recommit the same covenant he had first made with Abraham and Isaac and then to Jacob. That covenant, as opposed to the Mosaic covenant, was unconditional because God based it on himself and his promise, not on what anybody else could do. Its fulfillment had nothing to do with anyone else other than God and therefore would be fulfilled. Likewise, Jesus is the latter and access to God in heaven would be the fulfillment of the new covenant that God would be making with not just Jacob and Israel's descendants, but with people from the entire rest of the world. And I think all of us sitting here can say, thank you, God. Thank you for opening that up. The new covenant, just like the covenant God recommitted himself to with Jacob, would also be unconditional. It would be based on God and his promises, and as such would have nothing to do with us and everything to do with God's fulfillment of it in our lives. All we can do and all we must do is, again, surrender ourselves to it and accept it for ourselves. Because of this, Nothing will break this new covenant that we are still under in relation to God. All we can do to take Jesus as our only access to God, his heaven, and his kingdom is to recognize that our sin separates us from him and there's nothing we can do about it. We can never be good enough and we can never do enough good to earn it. It has nothing to do with anything we can do. All we can do is accept that Jesus paid what our sin only ever earns us, death, on our behalf and as our substitute. All we can do is repent of the sinful way we used to live our lives and ask God to forgive us of our sins based only on what Jesus did for us. All we can do is take Jesus as the only access in all of who he is, the Savior from our sin, death, and hell, and committing to live to please him with the rest of our lives and gratefulness for him saving us. Like Nathaniel, we have to surrender ourselves to what taking Jesus as our only access to God really means. That's all we can do, surrender and accept it. And then, as I talked extensively about before, God will start going to work on our lives, removing things, perhaps forcibly, from our lives that aren't good for us, transforming who we are as fallen humans in a broken world into who Jesus is, and redeeming everything about us, our sins, our pasts, our traumas, our predispositions, and our greatest struggles, all for his glory. May we, may we have as immediate and simple, with no conditions or strings attached, faith in Jesus as Nathaniel had, not only for our eternal salvation, but for everything about our lives. 
our pasts, who we are now, our struggles, and who we will be in the future. And one day, we will fully be able to enjoy that full and unencumbered access to Almighty God in our eternal home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for knowing us so well. Thank you that we can rest in the fact that you've written out every moment of our every day in your book before you even said, let there be light. And so, Lord, we know that whatever happens to us in this life, whether it's joyful, whether it's heartbreaking, we can trust you. We know that you have your plan and that you are working everything out for good for those who love you. We may not see it as good. We may not understand it. We may not ever see it this side of heaven. But we can trust that you are working everything together. And Lord, someday when we join with you, may we be able to see how all the puzzle pieces fit together. But Lord, in the meantime, let us rest in the fact that you know us perfectly. Inside and out. We can always trust you with everything that happens in our lives, everything that we are, and know that you are changing us and fighting our battles for us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.